I've got a question for you. Uh, I want to know what kind of things you kids do when you're trying to get your parents' attention and you don't have it. When you like want them and maybe they're on their phone because they're bad parents or they're talking to another, like your brother or sister or, or doing something else. So what do you do? Zeke? You shake their arm. Okay, what else? What about you, Zaley? Scream in their face. That's a little extreme. Noah? Tap them on the shoulder. Drew? Act grumpy. Matthias? Wine? All right. Solomon? What? Wait till they're done. That's, that's a good answer. Dinah? Keep saying their name until they answer. Levi? Over and over. So you say like mom, 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 even though it's probably dad, right? Yeah. How, how many times did you say their name? 30? Just 30? Or like you, would you keep going if they kept, kept not? What? Just keep going Forever. All right. The reason why, because I, I did the same exact thing when I was a kid. I would say mom, 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 mom. My most frustrating time as a kid was whenever we were about to leave church on Sunday morning because my mom would stop and talk to every single person uh, as we were trying to leave. And I would like pull on her arm and say her name over and over again uh, because I wanted her attention. I wanted, I wanted to go and eat lunch. Um, the reason why I bring that up is because there's something in our passage today that is kind of like the things you kids do when you want your parents' attention. Isaiah tells people to pray kind of like that. He tells people to to ask God to do what God said he was going to do and to not stop asking until he does it. He tells them to to not give God any rest, to, to bug him and to pester him until he answers their prayer. And so that, that is something that we're going to learn about today. And so kids, I would go encourage you to go home and get your parents' attention by whatever means necessary uh, and ask them to teach you about uh, the things that they learned about in this passage today, about ways in which we should pray and ask God to do for us what he said he wants to do for us. Uh, let's pray and we'll get into our passage this morning. Father, we thank you for your word. Thank you that you are gracious and merciful and that you love us. And one of the ways we know that's who you are is because you've given us your word to reveal yourself to us. And it reveals a God who is loving and merciful and gracious. It reveals a God who is our Father, who sent his Son, who sends his Spirit to help us to understand your word. God, we pray this morning that as we look at Isaiah 62 together, that we would learn more about how you save your people, that we would learn more about the kind of God you are, that you sent us a redeemer, that you didn't just send salvation or, or abstract concepts, but you sent yourself, you sent your son to save us and redeem us, to make us holy and to make us your people. 
we thank you for what you've done for us and pray that today through your word we would uh, know you more through it. Jesus, in your name we pray. Amen. So go ahead and open to Isaiah 62. We're going to go ahead and read the whole, whole chapter this morning, all 12 verses. But before we read it, last week at the end of the passage, uh, Isaiah talked about how God was going was to clothe him with the garments of salvation. He was going to give him a robe of righteousness. And he said that God wasn't just going to do that for him, but that God was going to cause righteousness and praise to kind of sprout up all around the earth. And that's, that's how the passage ended. Today's chapter picks up on that and talks more about how God is going to do that, how God is going to cause salvation and righteousness to kind of scatter all around the globe. So we're going to read verses 1 through 12. For Zion's sake, I will not keep silent, and for Jerusalem's sake, I will not be quiet until her righteousness goes forth as brightness and her salvation as a burning torch. The nations shall see your righteousness and all the kings your glory. And you shall be called a new name that the mouth of the Lord will give. You shall be a crown of beauty in the hand of the Lord and a royal diadem in the hand of your God. You shall no more be termed forsaken and your land shall no more be termed desolate. But you shall be called my delight is in her and your land married. For the Lord delights in you and your land shall be married. For as a young man marries a young woman, so shall your sons marry you. And as the bridegroom rejoices over the bride, so shall your God rejoice over you. On your walls, O Jerusalem, I have set watchmen all the day and all the night. They shall never be silent. You who put the Lord in remembrance, take no rest and give him no rest until he establishes Jerusalem and makes it a praise in the earth. The Lord has sworn by his right hand and by his mighty arm, I will not again give your grain to be food for your enemies, and foreigners shall not drink your wine for which you have labored. But those who garner it shall eat it and praise the Lord, and those who gather it shall drink it in the courts of my sanctuary. Go through, go through the gates, prepare the way for the people, build up, build up the highway cleared of stones, lift up a signal over the peoples. Behold, the Lord has proclaimed to the end of the earth, say to the daughter of Zion, behold, your salvation comes. Behold, his reward is with him and his recompense before him. And they shall be called the holy people, the redeemed of the Lord, and you shall be sought out a city not forsaken. So Isaiah just in the last chapter, is told, he recognizes, he learns that God is going to clothe him with the garments of salvation. God's going to give him a robe of righteousness. God's going to make him uh, righteous because he's not. He, he said back in Isaiah chapter 6 that he recognized that he was a man of unclean lips and he lived among a people of unclean lips. He recognized that he wasn't holy like God is holy, but now he's learned that God is going to make him righteous. God is going to make him like God is. Uh, he's, going to, he's going to give him a righteousness that he doesn't have. And today, he's learning more about how God is going to do that. And so it starts off in verse 1 by Isaiah saying that he's not going to keep silent. For Zion's sake, he will not keep silent. For Jerusalem's sake, he will not be quiet. So he is going to keep speaking. He's not going to shut up about the thing that he learned. He's going to keep speaking this good news that God is bringing salvation, that God is bringing righteousness, and he's going to do it for a specific time. He says he's going to do it until her righteousness goes forth as brightness and her salvation as a burning torch. So he's talking about the the city of God. He's talking about Jerusalem, and he's saying that he's going to keep talking about what God is going to do until 
until God actually does it. He's going to keep spreading that good news message until his salvation comes. He's going to talk about how God has made him righteous and how God is causing righteousness and praise to sprout up all over the earth until that thing actually happens. That's going to be his message. And he tells us that that, that, that happens. Verse 2, the nation shall see your righteousness and all the kings your glory, and you shall be called by a new name that the mouth of the Lord will give. So Isaiah is going to keep preaching this good news message until the city of Jerusalem becomes righteous, and he says that eventually that's going to happen. The nations are going to see that Jerusalem is made righteous. Uh, they're, going to call, they're going to be called by a new name that the mouth of the Lord will give. He says there'll be a crown of beauty, a royal diadem. They won't be termed forsaken. They won't be termed desolate. They're going to be different than they were before. This is kind of a passage. We're getting into a section in Isaiah where he's going to talk more and more and more about the new creation that God is going to bring. He's going to bring this new heavens and a new earth. And one thing that we see here, it's not a, it's not a major point of the passage, but it's something helpful for us to recognize as we learn more about this new creation that God is going to bring. And that is that when the Bible talks about the new heavens and the new earth, when the Bible talks about the new creation, there's both continuity and, and discontinuity. So there's things in this creation, in this world, that kind of keep going or continue into the next. There's also things that stop, that discontinue. And so uh, here we see that Jerusalem is given a new name. It's, it's different than it was before. We see that it's not forsaken anymore. We see that it's not desolate anymore. So there's a lot of discontinuity here, but there's also continuity because these people see the city of Jerusalem and they recognize that it's different than it was before. They see its, its righteousness. They see its glory. And they know that that's not the way the city was before. The city was destroyed. It was desolate. It was forsaken. And so there's things that keep going. The people see the city for what it is. But they recognize that God has changed it significantly. And we're going to see more of that as we continue through the next few chapters of Isaiah. So he gives them this new name. He changes the city. He makes it beautiful and righteous in ways that it wasn't before. And he tells us that instead of being called forsaken, instead of being called desolate, the name of the city will be called My Delight is in Her, and the land married. And he tells us why that's her name. Because the Lord delights in you, and your land married. And here I think it's a helpful point for us to recognize that God delights in us. And I know that we, we know that. We've read about it in scripture, but when Isaiah says that God delights in, in the city, he doesn't mean that he just delights in the, the land and the buildings and the structures and the people there. God delights because his people are in this city. That's what's special about this city, that God has, has made it what it is, and he's brought his people there. He's redeemed them. He's saved them. That's why he delights in the city, because he delights in his people. He delights in us. He delights in you. And I think it's important for us to, to receive that and to believe that and to know that because I think that when we think about how God looks at us, it's often not that he delights in us, right? Maybe we think that he's mad at us or angry with us or he just kind of tolerates us or he's ambivalent towards us. But scripture, when it talks about believers, when it talks about those who trust in him, when it talks about those who are in Christ, God loves us. He delights in us. He says, uh, as a young man marries a young woman, so shall your sons marry you. And as the bridegroom rejoices over the bride, so shall your God rejoice over you. 
So if you've ever been to a wedding or you've ever been in a wedding, there's that moment where the doors in the back of the room open up and the bride comes out. And you can look at the groom's face. Or if you've ever been a groom, you can remember what your face was like. Or if you've ever been a bride, you can remember what your groom's face was like. But the face lights up as they see their bride coming. And he's saying, that's how God looks at us because of what Christ has done. And it's a better look than any groom has ever given any bride. He delights in us. He rejoices over us. In verse 6 and 7, there's a call to action. Now he's going to talk about, about something that they're supposed to do because of what God is going to do. He says, On your walls, O Jerusalem, I have set watchmen. So he's put watchmen on the walls. Uh, all the day and all the night, they shall never be silent. So he's put watchmen on the walls and they're to, to not shut up about what they're going to talk about. And he says, You who put the Lord in remembrance, which is a kind of another way to talk about prayer, Take no rest and give him no rest until he establishes Jerusalem and makes it a praise in the earth. So he's saying, I'm going to put people on the watch on, on the walls. They're going to be watchmen. They're not going to be silent. And what they're going to do is they're going to pester God over and over and over and over and over and over again through prayer. They're not going to take rest. They're not going to give him any rest until God does what he said he was going to do. So they're just to keep asking and keep asking like kids when they want their parents' attention until they get God to answer the prayer of what he said he was going to do. They're going to ask him to keep his promises. I think just about the only other place in Scripture that I can think of that talks about prayer this way is when Jesus, in the Gospel, he tells a story about the guy who wants bread in the middle of the night. And so he goes to his neighbor's house and he knocks on the door and he asks for bread and his neighbor says, it's the middle of the night, go away. But the guy keeps knocking and keeps knocking and keeps knocking. And finally, the guy gets up and gives him bread just to get rid of him. And, and Jesus draws a line from that to, to how we should pray. And this is exactly what Isaiah is talking about here. Is that we should, when God has told us that he's going to do something, we shouldn't relent in asking him to do it for us. This is not them saying, you know, God, give me a new car or give me a new job or give me a bigger house and keeping, you know, repeating it over and over and over again until God gives it to them. That's not what this is. This is God says he's going to do this. He's going to save his people. He's going to redeem his people. He's going to bring them back to the land. He's going to restore the city. He's going to give them the garments of salvation. He's going to save them and redeem them. And Isaiah is saying, you people who want this to happen, keep asking God to do it until he does it. This is why, verse 8, the Lord has sworn by his right hand and by his mighty arm. He's, he's made an oath by himself that he will not, again, give your grain to be food for your enemies, and your foreigners shall not drink your wine for which you have labored. But those who garner it shall eat it and praise the Lord, and those who gather it shall drink it in the courts of my sanctuary. The key word here is not again. He's saying that God isn't going to, again, give them over to judgment like he did. He did that. The, the enemy came in. They conquered the people. They ate their grain. They drank their wine. They, they took them over. What was theirs became uh, this, their enemies. And he's saying that now things are going to be different. God's not going to do that again. Instead, they're going to enjoy their own grain. They're going to enjoy their own wine. And they're going to do it in the, th in the sanctuary of God in, in praise to him. And so God is saying he's not going to destroy them again in judgment. He's going to redeem them. He's going to overturn what he's done. 
And he tells him in verse 10, go through, go through the gates, prepare the way for the people, build up, build up the highway, cleared of stones, lift up a signal over the peoples. He's saying what he said before again and again and again in Isaiah is that he's going to bring them home. And so they need to get ready. They need to make ready. They need to prepare the way because God is going to bring his people back. He's going to save them and redeem them. Verse 11, he gives them the good news. Behold, the Lord has proclaimed to the end of the earth, Say to the daughter of Zion, Behold, your salvation comes. Behold, his reward is with him and his recompense before him. And they shall be called the holy people, the redeemed of the Lord. And you shall be called, sought out, a city not forsaken. There are four things we need to see about these two verses in order to understand the the, the significance of this good news message that God gives his people in response to their prayers. The first is he says that this is proclaimed to the end of the earth. This isn't a message that's just reserved for Israel. It's not a message that's just reserved for for one nation, one family. It's proclaimed to the end of the earth. And the reason why we need to hear that is because I think sometimes we think that in the Old Testament, God is just all about Israel. And it's not until we get to the New Testament that he becomes, you know, focused on the ends of the earth. Not until we get to like Matthew 28 and he says, hey, go to all nations. And we might think that God saving people from all nations is just kind of like an afterthought. But the reality is that if we read the Old Testament, and as we've seen in Isaiah, is that God's heart is for the nations all along. His plan of redemption is a global plan of redemption. And that's why this message is being preached to all nations. It's not just reserved for this one people group anymore. So it goes to the ends of the earth. The second thing is he says... Behold, your salvation comes. So first he gets their attention with the first behold, and then he says it again to make sure that they're really paying attention. And notice what he says here. He says, your salvation comes. Behold, his reward is with him. Now, if, if we were English teachers who didn't know any theology, we would bust Isaiah on this point, right? Because he says, your salvation, salvation is a concept So it should get uh, a neuter pronoun, it. Your salvation comes, its reward is with it, right? That's what we would expect. But salvation is a person. That's what he's telling them here. He's telling them salvation is coming and he is bringing his reward with him. He is bringing his recompense with him. That's because he's talking about the Messiah. He's talking about the Savior that he's sending into the world. Jesus is salvation and he's coming to redeem his people. That's why this is good news. They're not putting their hope and we're not putting our hope in some abstract concept. We're putting our hope in a person who saves us. The third thing is that he's, he's bringing salvation and he's bringing his reward with him and his recompense with him. And here's another place where we might be confused by the pronouns. Because if we're not really thinking about what the gospel says, we might be thinking that he's bringing my reward or, or our reward or our recompense But Isaiah, God through Isaiah, is very clear to point out that this Savior who's coming is bringing his reward and his recompense. And the reason why that's true is because you and I don't deserve any reward. 
right? We're not entitled to a reward. We're not entitled to a recompense. If God gives us what we deserve, we get death, and that's it. But because God loves us, because he's gracious, because he's got this global plan of redemption, he's sending his son to bring salvation, and his son is bringing his reward with, that, with, with him to share it with us. He's bringing his recompense to give it to us, even though we don't deserve it. We get his reward and his recompense, which is good news, right? Last He says that they'll be called the holy people, the redeemed of the Lord, and the city will be called sought out, a city not forsaken. They get get new names and a new identity because of what he's done, because he brings salvation, because he brings his reward, because he brings his recompense. They get a new name and a new identity, and their new name is that they're called the holy people, which means that they're called what they're not, because Isaiah As I said earlier, back in Isaiah 6, he said that he's a man of unclean lips, and he lives among a people of unclean lips. He recognized that he wasn't holy in the presence of a holy, holy God. But now, he tells us that because of what Christ is going to do when he comes, these people will be called holy because he makes us what we're not. He makes us holy even though we're not holy. He makes us like him even though we are very much not like him. He says that we're the redeemed of the Lord. Redeemed means that we're going to be bought out, brought out of our captivity and our slavery to sin. We're going to be called who we are based on what he has done for us, not based on who we really are by ourselves. And the city is no longer going to be known as desolate or forsaken. Instead, it's going to be sought out and and not forsaken. The the not forsaken is, I mean, I think they could have done better with that name, Uh, but, but it's what it's called. It's, it's different than it was before. God is going to cause people to stream to this city from all over the earth because he's going to save them and redeem them. He's going to give them a righteousness that isn't theirs. He's going to give them a reward that's not theirs. He's going to give them a recompense that's not theirs. And that's going to cause them to go to this city and be where he is because they want to know him and be with him because he has done for them what they cannot do for themselves. And there's nowhere else they want to be because there's nowhere else they can get the knowledge that they can only get in him. There's nowhere else they can get the salvation they can only get in him. There's nowhere else they can get the righteousness they can only get in him. And so they're going to be where he is so that they can be with him because he is their God and they are his people and he delights in them and we delight in him. This is what God is going to do for his people. This is the good news message that Isaiah isn't going to shut up about. This is the good news message that Isaiah is putting people on the walls and telling them not to shut up about. This is the thing we're supposed to pray for and ask God to do again and again and again until he does it for us, until he does it for those that we love and care about, until he does it for those in our city, in our neighborhood, in our community, in our family, in our workplaces. We're to ask God to save people like he said he wants to save people. We're to not relent in asking him to do what he wants to do and to be the God that he is. Jesus, in the Gospels, when he's telling his disciples how to pray, he tells them to pray, uh, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. He's telling them to ask God to do what he wants to do down here. 
This is the same kind of thing Isaiah is telling these people to pray for. It's the same kind of thing Isaiah is telling us to pray for, that God would accomplish his will in us and through us and among us. That he would bring his global plan of salvation to where they live and where we live. And we would see people benefit from having a bridegroom look at them the way that God looks at his people. So today, as we take the Lord's Supper, we need to remember that one of the reasons, one of the main reasons why we celebrate the Lord's Supper, why it was given to the church, is not just as a reminder of what Christ has done. That's part of it. But it's also a reminder that the work that Christ finished on the cross is still waiting for its fulfillment. Right? We don't eat a, a tiny cracker and like a teaspoon of juice after service every week because we just really need a snack. And that, that little bit is going to just hold us over into lunch. We, we take this because it is a tiny snack. It's to remind us about the banquet that's coming. It's to say, right now, we just have a little bitty taste of the salvation that Jesus has secured for us and for his people. And we're waiting for him to bring it in its fullness. We're waiting till we can all sit down at one massive table and celebrate what Christ has done for us with the greatest feast that we can imagine. But now, we just get a little glimpse. And we get a reminder that we're waiting for that. We get a reminder that, that God isn't just waiting because he's slow. He's waiting because he's patient. And he wants to give many the chance to repent. And so we need to see in Isaiah's good news message, both a reminder of the fact that we're trusting in a person and not in a concept, and that he's bringing his reward for us. We also need to be reminded of the fact that there are many people that haven't heard that good news message. And Christ sent us to preach it. Christ sent us to proclaim it. And we need to be more like Isaiah, where he says he's not going to keep silent about it until it happens. He wants to see righteousness sprout up all around him. He wants to see Jerusalem be the kind of city that God desires it to be. And because of that, he can't keep silent about it. And so if that's who we are and that's what we want, then we shouldn't be silent about it either. We should be willing to be uncomfortable. We should be willing to be awkward. We should be willing to have people talk bad about us. We should be willing to be put in any situation Jesus wants to lead us into to preach the good news of who he is and what he's done. And if we're not willing to do that, it's because we're disobedient. It's because we're selfish. It's because we care more about how we look than we care about how he looks. It's because we care more about our glory than his glory. And that's not to... You know, try to guilt us into sharing the gospel. That's not what the Christian faith is about. Instead, it's to remind us of what we've been redeemed from and what we've been redeemed for, to remind us of who God is and how he saved us so that we want to share the gospel with people. 
Right? We want to be a church that reminds one another of the good news all the time, not just so that we know the good news really well, but so that we know that it's good and we share it with people because it is good news. And so as we celebrate the Lord's Supper today, I would encourage you to, to pray and ask God uh, to send his spirit to do what the spirit does, which is bring to remembrance all the things that Christ has done convict us of sin, to, to remind us about who he is and what he's done for us, and that he would cause us to be those who share the gospel with other people because we're overwhelmed with what God has done for us in Christ. And that as we take the Lord's Supper today, it would be a reminder both of what Christ has done, and it would also be a reminder of what he's yet to do, what we're waiting for. And that would motivate us to, to worship him and to move outward with this gospel we've been entrusted with. Let's pray. Father, I thank you that before the foundation of the world, you had a plan to, to redeem people from every nation and language and people, that your plan was global. We thank you that even though this creation is corrupted because of us and our sin, that you're sending your son to make it new. You're sending your son to make us new. Jesus, we thank you that you came, that you brought salvation, that you brought your reward, that you brought your recompense, and that when we trust in you, we share in your reward. That we get clothed with the garments of salvation. You put a robe of righteousness on us because of what you've done. Father, we pray that as we continue in our service today, as we celebrate the Lord's Supper, and as we respond uh, and worship through song, that you would send your spirit to enable us to do what we can't do on our own. That you would equip us to worship you rightly, that you would convict us of sin, that you would motivate us towards obedience because of who you are and what you've done for us. That we would respond not out of obligation and not even out of gratitude, but instead out of love for you because of the love that you have for us. God, we thank you that if we're in Christ, you delight in us. Pray that you would help us to, to feel and to experience and to know your delight. And that would motivate us to share the good news with others. Pray now that you would help us as we turn to celebrate the Lord's Supper to do so rightly. Jesus, in your name we pray. Amen.